0: Thanks for checking out this sermon from Redemption Church in Seattle, Washington, where we are enjoying Jesus, loving people, and making disciples. If you'd like to learn more about redemption, you can go to redemptionchurchseattle.com. Or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday here in Green Lake. Okay, so if you have your Bible or scroll in an app, however you get to the Word of God uh, this morning, go to what Pastor Mike just read, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 to 16. Uh, We're going to be walking through what we just heard, the salt and the light. And so if you're not a Christian or this is your first time here or just investigating the Christian faith, special welcome to you. Uh, Glad you're with us this morning. This is a place where you can belong long before you ever believe what we do as professing Christians, believe about Jesus and the gospel. And so this is a place where you can investigate what we believe as followers of Christ. And so as we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount, we're calling it Uh, We're calling this series really flipping culture because that's precisely what happens when the Sermon on the Mount is believed, received, and applied. Culture is flipped. It's where serving is valued over lording over others in power. It's where the humble and the downcast are lifted up. It's where the proud are sent to the back of the line. It's where grace triumphs over retaliation. It's where love of God and neighbor is not a theory, but it's actually the way of life. It's in fact, in Acts chapter 17, it, they, they literally accused Paul and Silas and, the, and Jason uh, for flipping the world upside down. Literally, that's how they described the first Christians, was these men are turning the world upside down. And so it's appropriate to call Jesus' sermon something like flipping culture. I learned recently, too, I wondered, like, where did the word Sermon on the Mount actually come from? Because Jesus doesn't start the sermon with, by the way, this is called the Sermon on the Mount. This is the title. He doesn't do that, in case you haven't read it. And, um, and Matthew didn't title it. It was actually St. Augustine in the third century. He did. He's like, we're going to call this the Sermon on the Mount, and it just stuck. Anyway, so... Today we're jumping into the second sermon of about 15 total that we're going to do throughout the Sermon on the Mount. So we'll, we'll finish up around February. We're going to pause in Advent and, and, and walk through the Advent season, then we'll pick back up. Uh, but, you know, like, why can't we just wrap this thing up, move a little quicker? It's like, well, God only wrote one Bible, and so we've got all the time in the world until Jesus gets back. So you may as well take your time and uh, go deeper, right? You can dig your heels in. So that's what we're doing. So Sermon on the Mount, context. Context matters big time. Listen, the context in which something is spoken is as important as what is actually being communicated. The context in which something is spoken is as important as what was actually being communicated. Maybe you've had this experience in which you've had someone take something that you said, lift it out of its context, drop it into another context, and it, well, went maybe poorly. (laughs) Yes. And in fact, if you do it in the wrong situation, you can go to jail for that. So, context actually matters. And so, why mention that? Well, here's why. Uh, We're studying a book that's uh, a couple of thousand years old, uh, written in an ancient Near Eastern context, and now we're Dropping it into English in Seattle this morning. So we've got quite a gap. Have you noticed when you read the Bible and go, wow, they did things different back then? Or, wow, they said that very strangely? Or, oh, I don't understand that. Or, wow, that's very different. Yeah, context. We, we, we've got a few thousand years and a few thousand miles between us and the most recent person that participated in the writing of Scripture. So we go, okay, so the gap is big. How is it closed? How do you build a bridge? Well, the Christian faith is unique in that the author of the Scriptures, the person of the Holy Spirit, is actually present in the reading and preaching of the Scriptures and in the gathering of the saints. That we don't drop off and go, oh, gosh, well, the context was so long ago. How can we make sense of it today? We go, well, God the Holy Spirit is with us. And by his grace, he takes his word and applies it to us. So that's how the gap is at least closed. So you'll hear us referencing regularly the biblical, historical, and theological context of, of, of various passages. And so as we continue our journey, our second week through the Sermon on the Mount, we are reminded that the Sermon on the Mount is not Aesop's fables or um, some kind of trite wisdom sayings that may or may not be true. But rather, the Sermon on the Mount is exactly that. It's a sermon. It's Jesus's sermon. Okay? And now a sermon, I'll talk to you for a moment about what a sermon is, since you're church people, you're like, we know what a sermon is, dude. Well, in case for the one person who doesn't know what a sermon is, here's what a sermon is. The word sermon comes from the Latin, and all it means is really is an organized lecture or discourse or talk. Now, the emphasis, though, is certainly on the organization of the content being delivered, okay? So I've heard a lot of sermons in my life, Have you? Did anybody in here like grow up going to church? I'm not talking to just Easter, Christmas people, though y'all are always welcome. But I'm talking, did you grow Put your hands up. I know we're Presbyterians or whatever. There you are. See? See? Look. Holy Spirit's moving in our church right here. All right. So, yes. (laughs) All right. So, but in growing up, in going to church, I know I heard a ton of of sermons. I'm 37 years old now. Um, The very week I was born, born, my mom played piano at First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia, small farm town. And uh, I remember our church was about this size uh, at, when, I, when I went to my very, what I remember, what we called Big Church. Did you guys call it Big Church? This was called Big Church, and, if you, and then we had Sunday school, right? I remember being about five years old when I heard my, my very first sermon. And so this week I started thinking, going, okay, so that was about 32 years ago. How many sermons have I heard? Because literally, we were there Sunday morning, Sunday night, and what's the other sacred day? Wednesday night! That's right, church folks, all right. So, all right, so we were there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. That's a lot of sermons. That's a lot of sermons. So I did the math. That comes out to 1,664 sermons just on Sunday mornings. That's a lot of hours. In fact, if you do the math on all the hours, if, that's, if there's 1,600 sermons, that comes out to about 70 days. 70 days of my life I've heard people open up the Bible. And that's not counting like life groups and community groups and home groups and cell groups and accountability groups and, and, and groups that are about other groups that get together and, write and, get, write and assemble and do this, Bible study. And then, if that's not enough, I started going to seminary and starting my theological education at the age of 19 and stayed at it until I finished this year. Heck, I even translated in one class. We, we translated the Sermon on the Mount in Greek. I mean, I have had so much Bible and sermons and this. Is anybody, You guys are like, you know what? I've been in church a whole lot too. That's a lot of sermons. And so I'm thankful for it. In fact, the first time I preached a sermon, I preached a sermon at the age of sixteen. I became a Christian about ninety days earlier, and my youth pastor thought it was time for me to start preaching. <laughs> Which, anyway, so I preached a sermon on why Jesus loves punk rock kids because I was one. I was like, he. so that's what I did, and it was it was it was a great sermon, I'm sure. Um, yeah, but I have actually always been interested in like how sermons are actually arranged. And whether you've ever had a class in oral communication or not, you too actually have, you at least evaluate a sermon every Sunday when you leave. You walk out and go, man, that was awesome. Man, that totally stunk. Man, that made no sense. Or maybe I was like, mm, maybe that made sense to somebody else, whatever. But we have a criteria by which we evaluate a sermon, and we do so not just on the Content, but how the content's actually arranged. And then you also ask questions like, does this dude or girl up there, wherever you are, does this person believe what they're talking about? Is it persuasive? Is it true? Is it coherent? Is it passionate? Is it convicting? Is it relevant? Is it right? Does it have anything to do with my real life? Yeah, we walk out of here evaluating all the time, like whether if this was worth our time or not. So the arrangement of a sermon actually matters like why mention all this about sermons because we're looking at jesus's sermon the sermon on the mountainside so i'll tell you just a couple pieces on the context and then we're going to walk through those four verses okay first matthew 5 verse 1 matthew tells you that jesus ascended a mountain and sat down that's important In fact, Jesus is already preaching a sermon without opening his mouth. That move right there to a Jewish audience would have already been Jesus preaching. Like, that's so weird. You're supposed, preaching starts when the Bible is open. Hold on, in that Jewish context, Matthew was a Jew writing to Jews about the Jewish Messiah who has been sent by God, who is gonna redeem the people of Israel. Right, when they see Jesus ascend a mountain, every Jewish reader in the first century would have gone, oh man, something like earth shattering is about to happen right here. Why? It's just a mountain. Abraham goes up a mountain. Moses goes up a mountain. Elijah goes up a mountain. When Jews see something happen on a mountain, something's about to happen. God's going to set the thing on fire. Something is about to go off. Abraham, right, binds Isaac on a mountain, and then God provides a sacrifice. A Jew would have gone, oh, oh, man especially when you start reading, I mean, you gotta read Matthew's gospel real slow and ask, all the, like, ask a billion questions. Matthew is out to show you that Jesus is the truer, the greater, the superior Moses. Like you'll see, like uh, Moses goes up the mountain, gets the 10 commandments and comes down. Jesus goes up the mountain and now gives us the new way, the new law, the Christian law, the ethic of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's going to happen on a mountain. And if you read through Matthew's gospel, Matthew's trying to really make it like big blinking sign in your face. Jesus is superior to Moses and everyone else. So like if you read, remember Moses' birth story? What happens? Well, the Pharaoh notices that all the Hebrew slaves are, are growing in population, Right? And he gets nervous and gets really scared. And he starts to get threatened by the idea of there's too many slaves now. Oh, what if they rise up? So he calls for a mass infanticide to kill all the male children. Moses is spared by a miracle. His mother places him in a reed basket, floats him down the Nile River. And who picks him up? One of Pharaoh's servants brings him in and raises him in the Pharaoh's house. Moses was spared by a miracle. How does Matthew begin? The king of the Jews is born and now Herod's threatened and there's a mass infanticide. And Jesus is spared by a miraculous intervention in which God tells Joseph, get out, get out now. And ironically, where does Jesus go? To Egypt of all places. There's all kinds of things like that where Matthew's trying to show you that Jesus is greater than... And superior, or or Moses wanders for forty years, right? With the in in the wilderness, Jesus is tested for forty days. Moses, big covenant stuff. Read Exodus. There's a lot of that covenant. Jesus comes on the scene. What does he say in Matthew 26? This is the new covenant in my blood. Whoa! So these are all things that Moses. So when Jesus goes up the mountain. Here you go. Okay. So this is, isn't your Bible amazing? That is, that's, that's so, ah, it's awesome. All right. So there you go. Let me, let me just preach the sermon. All right. um, Stick to your notes. Let's see. Gosh, yeah. Okay. I'll mention something on arranging real quick. When Jesus arranges his sermon, he opens it up with the Beatitudes. Pastor Drew walked us through the Beatitudes last week and, and, and he opens with the Beatitudes says, this is what my disciples look like. Then he goes into this thing on being salt and light. And then he goes into, okay, but I've, I've not come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill it. And then he gets into what, what is it supposed to look like as a Christian? Like, uh, how do I trust God? And so chapter six, he gets into all the, right, the, the don't worry about this or that. Just seek the kingdom first. And, and then he starts asking questions like, well, what do I do about retaliation? What do I do about lust? What do I do about taking oaths and going to court? And what do I do about lying? And how do I tell the truth? And what do you do if someone doesn't tell the truth? Like he gets into all the ethics of what life is supposed to look like. And then he wraps it up with, uh, well, should you judge people? Well, no, don't judge anybody. But hey, by the way, at the end, you're going to get judged. Build on the rock, not the sand. Jesus' arrangement of his sermon is perfect. Like, well, that's kind of redundant. It is Jesus and it is preaching. It's the thing, right? It's a perfect, it's perfect. The way he thinks through everything, it's marvelous. So you've got to hang with the Beatitudes in order to give context to everything else that comes after. Okay, so Sermon on the Mount, Salt and Light. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. All right, so let's just do the salt of the earth. That's that's an interesting thing to say, isn't it? You are the salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth. There's actually a massive theology of salt in your Bible. I know you're all probably got up and wondered about that this morning, but there is. There's actually a, the Bible says a ton about salt, a ton. Um, So like uh, in Exodus 30, uh, salt is used to purify sacrifices in the temple. Uh, It's used in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, It it mentions in Ezekiel that that when a baby would be born, a baby would be washed with clean water and then sprinkled with salt as a, as a symbol of belonging to the Holy covenant belonging, a pure covenant with God. It's also likened when you see like over in Isaiah, you'll see God saying, I'll, I'll wash you white as, as wool. You'll be like snow. And even salt is oftentimes a, a metaphor as well. A symbol of, of purity, a symbol of, of being set apart. It was referred to in the book of Job. It's also referred to over in Colossians and referencing how our speech should be seasoned with salt. Uh, Elijah, he threw salt in the water, and the water is said to be, to be healed. And of course, in the ancient world, meat was cured and preserved through salt because the commodity of uh, a refrigerator was just unbelievably rare. Those that could put things on ice, that was not the most popular thing in first century Palestine. You're like, no kidding. Right. So Jesus is teaching here when he says to his disciples, he is not talking to everybody else in the world, he's speaking to the disciple to the disciples. You are the salt of the earth. He's teaching that everyone who would come after him as one of his disciples is to be about fighting back the decay that is throughout society you are the salt like your refrigerator at home that preserves your groceries that's precisely what we as followers of Jesus are to be in the world we are to push back against darkness to push back against decay to push back against sin against God and sin against our neighbors You're the salt. You're to fight that kind of decay. So this is why we're to be about seeking human flourishing in our city. This is why we're passionate about pro-life. For all of life. For every life. Not just pro-birth. We're pro-birth. You better believe it. But pro-life, for all of life, for every life, This, this is what it means to be salt of the earth, to look at your neighbor, red, yellow, black, and white, and go, I have their best in mind, and I check my politics at the door because my theology trumps my politics day in and day out as a follower. I am first and foremost a citizen of heaven before I'm a citizen of anywhere on this earth. So... This is what Jesus, I believe, is getting at. This is why we give to local missions. This is why we give to global missions. This is why we pray for our school teachers and pray for firefighters and police officers and politicians. This is why we pray for our artists to create art to the glory of God. This is why we make disciples that are intentional about going about encouraging one another in the day-to-day. And you know what? This isn't unique to us in this room right now. It's as old as the faith is itself. So look at this excerpt. Uh, It's from an early epistle known uh, as the Epistle to Diognetus. Uh, We don't know who wrote it. The, the, the author is anonymous, but listen to this. They, they, many scholars believe that this guy actually served uh, in the court of Marcus Aurelius in 130 AD. Listen to this. This is the reputation. This is the reputation of the early Christians. Salt of the earth. Listen to this. This is what they said about our family. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, yet endure all things as foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their own birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they're citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They're put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in lack of all things, yet they abound in all. They're dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled, and they bless. They are insulted, and repay the insult with honor. They do good, and yet are punished as evildoers. This is what was being said about the saints in the first and second and third centuries, and it's being said about saints around This is what salt of the earth looks like. They've resigned to fall after Jesus. And then Jesus adds this stark conjunction. He says, so you're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can can saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So, what is he talking about here when he says salt losing its taste? How can salt become unsalty? Here's what Jesus is doing He is calling disciples to a radical obedience in which we operate and we separate ourselves from the world. This doesn't mean we retreat from the world, it means we repent in the world and live completely counterculturally to the world. Can salt lose its saltiness? Yes. Mingle it with other elements and you lose saltiness. It can be contaminated. Mix it with water or sand or whatever. Jesus is saying that his disciples who are walking in the Beatitudes are the salt of the earth. But if we bring sin into our lives and keep it, nurse it, harbor it, tolerate it, rather than seeking to put sin to death we end up becoming completely ineffective in the world and have lost our entire purpose of being christians do you see how do you, jesus is getting at this is a radical form of obedience to him then he follows it with the harsh image of saying it's no longer good for anything but to be trampled under pe- but to be trampled under people's feet So in Luke's gospel, he says it even a bit more harshly. Like, gosh, listen to what he says in Luke. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's neither fit for the soil or the manure pile. It's to be thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Whoa. What's he saying there? Well. Once the salt is spoiled, you can't go throw it in the earth. It, it contaminates the soil. And it's no good for the manure pile because now it just ruins the, the fertilizer. So it's good for gravel, which is what they would do with spoiled salt. It would be poured on gravel paths. And the word trampling, this is, this is an intentional word. He does not say walking on. He says trampling For a reason, you can see it over in Matthew seven. Also, you'll see him talk about pearls before swine and trampling. Um, This is—I want to read you something from one of my one of my professors. He wrote a commentary a, a few years ago, and it's it's really powerful with grabbing this image of the word trampling. Listen to this: When professing disciples lead impure lives, they invite the spite of even the corrupt world. Jesus did not describe pedestrians merely walking on the worthless salt. Instead, they, quote, trample it. This is the same verb used later in the Sermon on the Mount to describe the pigs trampling pearls with their hooves. The language implies that the world will abuse those who are like defiled salt, treating them with scorn and disgust. The final beatitudes show us that those who claim to be Jesus' disciples are sometimes persecuted because, of their, because their righteousness is a silent indictment on the sins of others. Sadly, those who claim to be Jesus' disciples but live sinfully may be persecuted because their hypocrisy is repulsive to those who have observed the inconsistency between their words and their actions. You see what he's doing there? the end of the Beatitudes, you're going to be persecuted for righteousness sake. You call out sin, you're going to be persecuted for that. Then he turns around and says, oh, but if you start contaminating the salt and start welcoming sin, oh, they're going to, the world's going to call you out for that too. And they'll trample you under their feet because you're calling out their sin. And yet you harbor the same thing. You see, this is a radical thing, especially for Jesus to be walking through, not Seattle today where truth is relative and whatever. No, no, he's talking, saying, I'm the Messiah, the son of God, hijacks the entire Old Testament, and says, I'm Yahweh in the flesh. Come at me. <laughs> and then says, if you don't take this seriously, the world will trample you under their feet. And Because he's calling out, our hypocrisy. He wants us to be integrous, to be consistent in word and deed, that our deeds have to correspond to our confession or the world's going to trample you. And, I mean, think about your unbelieving friends for a moment. Heck, think about why. Let's not even talk about people outside. Let's talk about, like, why we have a problem with church people in here today. What's the word? Hypocrisy. Do we all not struggle when we look around at various Christians at various moments in our lives and go, that's hypocrisy. That's wrong. You profess one thing and yet you live another way. The word hypocrite, literally, in the first century, that wasn't original to Jesus. Jesus stole that from the theater. That's what they called play actors with their masks, the thespians walking around outside the, the theater, be, they would have their mask on, done up, ready to go in and perform. Jesus is like, yeah, that's, that's what hypocrites are. There's somebody else un, underneath. Jesus is saying, if you lose your saltiness, if you start harboring sin, if you start keeping things that don't belong in the Christian life, we invite our own persecution So you're like, okay, so if I live consistently with the gospel, I'll be persecuted. Okay. If I'm a hypocrite, I'm, gonna, I'm inviting persecution there too? Yes. Like, well, is there a way out? Well, yeah, just don't claim Christ anymore and you're, you're fine. Then you can just be part of the world. But then you've made yourself now an enemy of God. So... What do we do? Well, we hide in our savior. We look to one another. We look to God's word. We stay in communion with each other. Our family, the church family is a priority. We pray for each other. We seek the well-being of one another. We do what we just read in in, in the year 130. We're doing that kind of stuff. It's a serious thing, and I love that Jesus. This is not a Mickey Mouse religion. This is this is real. This is real. Man, we could just stop there, but we won't, because, because this is great. Listen, the next verse, and he changes the metaphor a little, but he says, "You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be cannot be hidden." So now, when he says light, I, I just you're here, so I got to tell you this stuff. All right, look. Um, in the 8th century, Isaiah the prophet, what does he do? Like if you get to, Isaiah is broken into basically two books, right? First 39 chapters and then the last from 40 to the end. That's the, that, they call it Deutero-Isaiah, so number two, right? So the second leg of Isaiah, go look at all the references to light. Israel's is to be the light of the nations, the light of the world. And then, of course, it's mentioning the suffering servant, that Jesus himself that would come, that would be the light, right? So now Jesus now looks at his disciples and says, you are the light of the world. When, when a Jew would hear the word light, they think of things like peace, shalom, salvation, They think of God. They think of the covenants. They think, they think light. It's not just flick a light on and you know, when they would hear the word light, it, it resonated in here. It said something to them. So Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And, and this was written, this was written in, in what's called Koine Greek. And when, when you, when you study the original language, listen to this, the you are the, you are the. Salt of the earth or light of the world. Both times when Jesus uses that phrase, you are the, it's in this Greek tense that's extremely emphatic. Jesus would have raised his voice and been like flying around like this kind of thing. You know, like, you know, yeah, I see. Yeah. He would have, you are the light of the world. Now, Here's what he's doing. That article the is so important right there. You are the, meaning not just a light, which now goes directly against everything we hear in our city today. Jesus was so bold to stand up and say, I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine, right? I am the light. Jesus now looks at the disciples, you are the, meaning The light of the world is uniquely expressed and experienced in the church. Above every other religion, Jesus is not not on par with Muhammad or Moses or any other New Age idea or any other institution. It's very offensive all of a sudden. Like, yeesh real narrow. Oh, it's real narrow. He even said that too. He's like, narrow is the way, like Jesus knew what he was saying. You are the light of the world. One piercing beam of light in all the darkness, all the sin, all the evil, all the decay, all the evil all the betraying, all the violence, all the, all the stuff that makes us sick when we look at the news feed every day. One piercing beam of light comes in. Wow. And some might get mad and go, well, why can't there be a lot of different ways? And why can't there be more lights? That's the wrong question. Let's not argue about God not giving us more lights. Let's just give him glory that he gave us one. He doesn't owe us multiple paths to heaven. And he doesn't owe us multiple. He didn't owe us anything. But he gave us Jesus, the light of the world. And those who stand with Jesus reflect Jesus into this world. You're the light of the world, church. This is speaking to your identity. This speaks to how you see yourself, how you see your neighbors, your brothers and sisters. Right? You are. This speaks to you. This is bigger than your job. This is bigger than your marital status or single status or if I have kids or if I don't have kids or what my retirement plan looks like or whatever it is. This speaks so far beyond our identity. You're the light of the world. First and foremost, you're grounded there. And the light of the world comes through those who are practicing the Beatitudes. Not in theory, but in real life. Listen, when Jesus says, you're the light of the world, and then he says, a city is set on a hill. When a city is set on a hill, it cannot be hidden. And then he follows it with the whole reference to, uh, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a, a, a basket but he puts it on a table, and he gives light to everyone in the house. And then what's he say? So do good works that others will see him and give glory to your Father in heaven. Look what he's doing there. Jesus is going completely against our Western Americanized idea of a privatized relationship with God. Well, me and Jesus are cool. I, I pray, you know, on my own. I mean, what, do you go to church? No. You give? No. You serve? No. Do, do, Do you you serve your neighbor? No. Jesus would go, well, that's not Christian. You're the light of the world. A city set on a... You don't light a lamp and put it under the bed. The light has a purpose. You put it up so that it gives light to everyone else. So he goes against this whole privatized thing. And listen, he actually expects Christians to do good works. And in a day and age, like Pastor Drew mentioned last week we're saturated in grace. Like, give me the grace of God all day. You better believe it. Yes, I will take grace. I flat need a ton of it. Yes and amen. And then we go, well, works. Jesus expects us to do good works. Hold on, that sounds like the law. We're not into the law. No, you should be into the law. The law is good and perfect. David said the law is like honey on my lips. It's perfect. It's God's. Why would we call that bad? It's great. I just... Well, what's bad with it is me, not the law. I broke it. That's the problem. So Jesus says, do good works, that he actually expects the saints to be about preserving society and doing good works. Why, like, when you go read the Reformation history. What were all the Reformers doing? Building hospitals and orphanages. They actually thought that, hey, this is not just a thing that we just come to church and read the Bible and take communion and go home and... like. But well, it actually is supposed to translate into actual how we how we actually live. Go read James, and it makes perfect sense. Faith without works is dead. Jesus says, "Do good works. Do them. Do good works." Coming from the mouth of Jesus. So anybody that talks to you about the grace of God and then downplays repentance, downplays sin, downplays loving God and loving neighbor and doing all these things in the name of grace has a misunderstanding of what grace is. Grace always transforms us into people that become like, like what Jesus is describing here. Does that make sense? Okay, good, because, I mean, it's like, ye, we got to get this thing right. It's grace drives us to our doing good works. Why do we do good works? So that everybody will think we're awesome? Hardly. (laughs) Those were the guys that Jesus was going after all the time. Just read the rest of the Gospels. It's heavy. What is Jesus doing with the, the good works thing? So that they will do what? Give glory. Come on, we're reformed people in here. We're all about the glory of God, right? We're glory. So we give glory to God in heaven. That's why. So our... The reason, one of the motivating factors in why we go about doing good works, loving, serving those inside and outside the church is so that they will give glory to God in heaven. Now notice, look, Jesus said you're going to get persecuted for living righteously. And then he says, and if sometimes you'll be persecuted if you, you know, live a life contaminated with sin. But some people respond well. Some people respond in favor and go, oh. Man, you're doing good works for what purpose? For what reason? And it doesn't end in people singing our praises. They sing the praises to our Father. That's That's what Jesus is getting at. Do your good works so that they'll give glory to God in heaven, which is the reason why we're created, which is the reason why we exist on the earth. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, there it is. We do our good works so that God would be glorified. We do our good works because we want people to know how great God is. And if a good work comes through you, you know you didn't do that. That came from him too. That came from him. So as brothers and sisters, as we're thinking about being the salt of the earth, the light of the world, And we hear that and go, gosh, that's a massive calling. Where do I get the power to do it? Here's where. Not by looking inward to go, well, I guess I better try harder and do a few more good works and sign up for a few things and, you know, whatever. You don't get the power to do it there. How do you become salty in a world that wants to contaminate you? You practice that really hard thing called repentance. You practice that thing called confession. And you go to Jesus, the one who preserves, the one who will make it all new, the true capital S, salt. How do you, how do you become the light of the world? Oh, well you, you hang out with Jesus long enough, stay close enough, and you begin to glow like he does. That's how. You look to him. You stay close to him. You hide in him. You confess to him. You worship him. You walk with him. And like what we just sang a minute ago, we stay with him as our friend. We stay with him as our friend. And in that posture, this is where the good works come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of Jesus and the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for our sins, for the days that we have fallen so short Thank you for covering all of our sins, the ones we know we've committed and even the ones we aren't even aware of. Thank you. God, we ask that you'd work powerfully in and through our church here at Redemption. Would you make us the salt of the earth, the light of the world? Would you help us to walk in deep resolve, deep conviction, and in deep joy that comes with obeying and following you Lord Jesus, we thank you for our salvation. I thank you for what you've done here today and what you're going to continue to do. Father, we ask that you would lift up Jesus in the city of Seattle. And I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning that they would know that they are deeply loved by God. I pray these things in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.